Welcome to episode 90 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Kim Scutto Bailey. She is a military sexual trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder survivor. She is a prior incarcerated veteran, a military suicide survivor, and she now works as a social worker and military mental health advocate, breaking stigma on mental health, trauma, and incarceration of our female veterans at Invisible Combat. Her story is a difficult story to hear because it has so much heartbreak and struggle that she went through, but now seeing all that she's doing on the other side is encouraging to see that there is light at the end and that you can take your really bad situation and use it to make a positive impact in the world. So go check her out on Invisible Combat at Instagram and Facebook and let's get started. military podcast where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives i'm amanda huffman i am an air force veteran author of women of the military and a collaborative author in brave women strong faith i'm also a military spouse and mom i created women of the military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Kim. I'm excited to have you here. So we got connected because Military Families did an article about me, and you won a copy of my book. And then when you sent me your address, it had this location that was very close to my heart because you live in my hometown, which is Fresno, California. So I'm really excited that we got connected through that and then the small world connection that we're both, well, I'm from there and you're living there now. Absolutely. It's so, it's, it's very, uh, it was very ironic. I was like, wow, you're from my town too. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? So interestingly enough, I mean, I, so I was adopted at a pretty young age. I was probably about three years old. So I don't come from a military home, so that wasn't something that was like brought up. But my stepfather did serve in the military, but it wasn't like we talked about it very often. So for me, the military was sort of my escape route. And I think a lot of other service members probably have similar stories to that, you know, because because I was an adopted family and I was, I'm not Caucasian, but my family that I was adopted by was Caucasian. That left me with like a lot of identity crisis kind of questions. And I, I didn't know my birth parents, didn't know the story, my origin story or anything like that. So I was looking for something like looking for a purpose or like a higher mission. So the military was my escape route, basically. And you joined in 2004. So did September 11th? have any effect on why you decided to join? No, I mean, I distinctly remember that day, of course. I think everybody everybody does. I, did, I wasn't thinking that. I was mainly just thinking about, you know, just getting out of my town. You know, Fresno, it's a black hole. <laughs> I know you probably know. If you don't ever leave here, you're probably going to be here forever. And I came back. <laughs> so that's yeah. very interesting. But no, I don't think that that really had any bearing on me joining the military. 
Okay, it is a black hole, but, and yes. then it sucks you back in. <laughs> you get away, and then it sucks you back. Yes. So you decided to join the army, and you were a combat medic and healthcare specialist. So where did you go to basic training, and what was your tech school like? So I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, for basic training, and yeah, it was that was great. I mean, I. It's really interesting, and I know a lot of people can probably relate about basic training, how it's all about teamwork and team building and just kind of breaking you down to like rebuild you back up again. And so for me, it was really interesting because coming from me being adopted and coming into this new family mindset, right, I already had um, a lot of you know, ideas about my identity. Like I was having, you know, I had an identity crisis. I was still trying to figure out who I was and where I belonged in the world. So coming into the military, it was like, this is, this is it. You know, it's kind of clicked, like, because, you know, of course we're, we're rebuilding and refinding camaraderie and unit, you know, family, right? And so me not having a strong family background or family unit, it was very um, impactful for me, even though it was difficult. And, you know, of course, basic training was very you know, challenging physically, right? And I'm in mentally as well. But I found a lot of family, basically. And I felt like it's, this is just this was it for me. And then um, when I went into AIT, being that I was a combat medic, and a lot of us went to AIT together from basic training. We, start, we served in basic training together and went to AIT. But interestingly enough, I was adopted. And like when we had free time, like during the second half of my training, I was able to use the computer. So I went down to the computer lab and my mother, my biological mother, had sent me a message on MySpace. I don't know if anyone remembers MySpace. <laughs> yeah, it was very, it was a long time ago. It was back in 2005, I think. She found me on MySpace. So I'm sitting there in AIT connecting with my biological mother on MySpace. And I, she told me that I had biological siblings as well. I didn't know that I had brothers and sisters prior to that. Of course, I was like, wow, this is insane. You know, I'm, I'm in AIT trying to figure out where I'm going to go to all this unanswered questions about where I'm going to go, you know, next after I leave AIT, which was in San Antonio, Texas, by the way. And so the next morning I had told her to call me. So right before formation, before we were going down to PT formation, she gave me a call and I got to connect with her on my, the phone. And she gave me some very traumatic, uh, you know, explanations about my origin that I didn't know previously to that. So I'm sitting there on the bed. Everybody else else had already left to go down to formation. And I'm sitting there just bawling, just crying, you know, because some of the information she gave me was was not the best. I mean, I, I guess I can share it because it kind of ties into my military experience. So my mother was sexually assaulted when she was very young, probably about 13 or 14 years old. I was a product of that. So that was one of the, the things that I was just learning in AIT. So the drill sergeant, who was male, came up to the floor to find out where I was because I wasn't in formation. And he saw me sitting there on the bed crying. And he immediately just like, I saw him come in the door and he immediately just stopped and walked out. <laughs> he didn't know what to do, you know. So he went and got another female drill sergeant from another unit or another platoon. Didn't know her. She came up to me to find out what was going on, sat with me on the bed, hugged me. I mean, it was phenomenal. She she hugged me and she was like, what's going on? And she kind of had like a little pep talk with me. And so because of that, she was like, well, what can we do to help you? And they let me actually go off, off base. They let me take a weekend with my mom. So they, they flew my mom in to see me. And I got to spend a weekend with her. And um, then I went back to regular schedule. So I was like, that's just a really phenomenal, interesting story. And also it shows just what great leadership is in the military. Some, some military, I've had talks of leadership, but I've also had experiences like this that show just how caring and how great leadership can be. Yeah, that's a really positive story because like you said, sometimes you... I mean, that drill sergeant could have came in, saw you crying and been like, get your butt down to formation. Instead, he went... <laughs> 
and found another female and let her talk to you. That's a really positive and encouraging story from the military. Right. It's very interesting. I'm like, because people are like, wow, that because I don't really tell a lot of people about that because, you know, of course, I was still in training. Our primary focus was just like getting through training. Right. And then moving on to our next duty station. But um, but yeah, that was a very impactful story for me because it just showed me at that point, I was thinking this is about to be the greatest situation in my life being in the military if I'm going to be able to serve with people like this, right? Leadership like this. And then after you finished AIT, so you went from being like this kind of tight-knit unit of people who went to boot camp and then went to AIT together Mm -hmm. and then you all dispersed. Yes. Yeah, I went to Launchstuhl Regional Medical Center, which was in Germany. And at that time, because it was pretty early on, you know, in the Iraqi and Afghanistan wars, we were predominantly um, like a, you know, a medical combat support unit hospital because we're like the middle ground between, you know, the battlefield and, you know, end of the state. So a lot of the war casualties and severely injured soldiers would come to us. We would stabilize them and make sure they're medical state, medically stable and perform operations or whatever they needed to have right there at that moment. And then they would go to the to the states, to Walter Reed or to, you know, any of those, the other, the stateside hospitals. Yeah. So was that kind of like high ops type job where you guys were doing like all kinds of crazy stuff because it just depended on what the people came back with. And then, I mean, it's hands on learning right away. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so Part of my, so for us, it was a regular hospital. So it was the only hospital overseas, like in Oconus, that had, we did regular um, patient care. So I worked in many different clinics. I mean, I started off working in the PDI, or I started off working in OBGYN, actually. So I worked there and then I went to pediatric. So we did regular patient care on top of the emergency care that we had. So basically we had manpower missions, um, which was what they were called. And we would be able to stable. So they, they would give us a call any time of the day. It could be during our patient care. We could be just doing regular patient care with the patients, soldiers or their family members. And then we would get a call saying that there was um, an explosion or that there was some sort of a, you know, crisis overseas. And then we would have to just basically get to the ER, stand there and wait until the airvac came or until the medevac came. Um, a lot of the medevacs came from Ramstein, which is an air force base over in Germany. And they would helicopter straight from the battlefield from Iraq or Afghanistan, come to us. We would transport them, medically stabilize them. Sometimes there was, I mean, a phenomenal amount of soldiers. I mean, it just depended on what the type of crisis that happened over there was. And we would just be standing there on wait. Could be three in the morning, two in the morning. It was it was very chaotic, especially during the early parts of the war. We had a lot of soldiers coming through. Yeah, that's crazy. And especially you were pretty young and you were in Germany and then you were doing this like kind of a crazy job where you're not on the front lines. The front lines are coming almost directly to you because you're having to, you know, see the people who've gotten blown up or hurt and having to stabilize them. Exactly. Yeah. We, we had some pretty, you know, pretty serious injuries. I mean, and really during the beginning parts, because I was there, like, I think I got there about 2005. At that point, we did have a lot of, you know, some casualties, some, you know, that didn't make it. And so um, that was really during the, the early parts of it. I was there until 2010. So it got better as we, you know, as we continued on. And yeah, at that time, I think we were like 85% war casualties um, and war and combat soldiers that came directly from the field. So we had, we know we did all kinds of specialty care. We had like in the, the pediatric clinic, we had um, all the specialty providers, you know, like um, endocrinologists, you know, learning, dis- learning disability type of providers. But then we also had that additional support that we had to do for the war casualties. So you were dealing with that and you were you were working a lot and doing your job. Mm-hmm. 
Did you face any struggles while you were serving over there in Germany? Yeah. So um, interestingly, because I was very young, you know, how I was saying um, coming into the in the service. And so I was still trying to figure out who I was right when I got there. And probably the first like right when I got there, I was in like a temporary unit. I was assigned to, I think, the anesthesiologist clinic. So I had an NCOIC who was in charge of us. And around that same time, he actually had completed suicide. So that, and that was my first, you know, kind of moment in the military, like trying to figure out where I belong in this unit, trying to figure out how I was going to fit in. And then this happened. It was insane because I, I didn't know him personally, but he was my NCOIC assigned to me at that time. I don't know how, I really don't think I felt, I mean, of course it impacted me a lot because I'm like, well, what did I get myself into? What's really going on? You know, and because we didn't really speak a lot about it because, you know, of course they had supportive, um, supportive supports for people that were impacted by this suicide, but I didn't really know. It was, you know, it was just really difficult time for me at that point for that, that portion of it. And then after we kind of got through that as a unit, we still continued on with the missions and all that stuff. Everything was always mission first. You know, our patient care was always first, making sure that, you know, people didn't, you know, pass away on our watch when we were transporting them. All that stuff was kind of in the forefront. And then within the first year of my service, unfortunately, I did experience a military sexual trauma in the barracks where I lived because we had a co-ed barracks at that time. I think they still have one actually. So I had two really big traumas basically right away when I got there. Um, and so that really definitely impacted me moving forward in my career, definitely. Did you, with the military sexual trauma, did you keep that to yourself or did you tell other, like your higher ups and file a claim? How did that all happen? Yeah, so sort of. So, so I think most people know when it comes to military sexual trauma, that military cultural stigma kind of, and it's not necessarily told to us. Like we're not told hey, you can't say anything. But remember how was, we were talking about how in basic training, that unit cohesion is just so strong and that family bond is so strong that it's kind of like an unsaid thing. So after it happened, and I actually had had a head injury during the incident as well. Afterwards, in the morning of, the next morning when I woke up, I didn't want to tell anybody. I was so ashamed and I felt so guilty that you know somehow it was my fault or that people would find out about it. So I didn't want to tell anybody. So of course I had, you know, I don't it's TMI, but I had bleeding on my head and I had to go. I took a shower, washed off my head, took all of the my blankets, everything that was in my room that reminded me of what happened. I, I Before I went to work, I walked it to the dumpster and I threw it all away because I'm like uh, out of sight, out of mind. Right. At that point, I was thinking that way. I was like, let me go back to work and figure out like nothing ever happened. I just want to forget that this ever occurred because that was it was an NCYC. So it was somebody who everybody knew he'd been there for a lot longer than I had. Because like I said, I was very new to the unit. So I I really did not want anyone to find out because I felt like if everybody found out, I would just, you know, because we're so such a close knit family already. And I'm trying to fit my like fit in and trying to figure out my way um, into that family. I was like, I'm not going to say anything. Um, I went back to work and everything was fine for a little while. I mean, I was having headaches. Of course, I was starting to have issues, right? Challenges with myself, um, internalized challenges. Because of course, for me, I wasn't talking to anybody. I was trying to keep it to myself. I wasn't telling anybody. I did tell my friend that night. The day, next morning, I told the friend that was with me prior to me going to my room. I had shared it with her, but she's the only one that knew at that point. The only reason why it came out was because I ended up getting pregnant from the incident. And so once I got pregnant... Of course, because this is this is my first time, you know, I wasn't married and I was new to the unit. I was very young. Uh, I had to tell somebody. Right. I was like, I don't know what to do. I was very afraid. So I went to my um, NCYC, who was actually an, an airman. You know, she was she was in the Air Force. Interestingly enough, we were in an army hospital, but we also worked with Air Force and Navy as well in that hospital. So I told her and she I don't know if she's ever had that experience before or had um, 
a soldier or somebody underneath her that had experienced that. So she really didn't know what to do. It was kind of like shock. Like, what do I do? Let's let's go tell the commander right now. And I, I was like, well, I, I just don't want anybody to know. I'm like, this is embarrassing, you know? And so she took me to the commander's office. We sat in his office and they pretty much really encouraged me to tell who it was. I didn't want to tell. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you who it is because once you tell, once I tell you, I feel like everyone's going to find out. And, you know, I don't want to be, and I'm already feeling shamed and guilty. And I'm like, you know, feeling like some, somehow I'm going to ruin everybody's, all the unit cohesion. I feel like I'm going to be the one that ruins it. So I'm like, I don't want anyone to find out who it was. So he, he said, okay, well, we're not going to, you know, I'm not going to tell you right now, but I want you to tell me eventually. So think about it. So I went home, thought about it. He called me back into his office again. And he was like, again, really highly encouraging me. He was pressuring me basically to tell who this person was. So eventually I told who it was. And I mean, all hell broke loose. It was, the, I mean, it was one of the worst experiences that I ever experienced in my life being in a situation. I wasn't in the combat situation, but I felt like I was in a highly hostile and toxic environment afterwards because everybody found out. I don't know how, I'm pretty sure it came from the other individual because when he got arrested, I'm pretty sure he probably told people about why he was arrested because I didn't tell anybody. The only person I told was my commander, my NCOIC, and that friend that I had told prior to it all coming out. And it was insane. Nobody would talk to me. Like I would sit in the defect and people would get up and move. I would walk down the hall. People would turn their back. It was, I'm sorry. I was not going to get emotional about this, but it's just um, unacceptable behavior. Right. And we, we know this now looking back, it's like, it's very hostile. It's very, it's like bullying. It's very, um, inappropriate behavior. So, um, me being in that situation, I was already I was already dealing with a lot of shame and guilt over the situation that happened. And now it's like reinforced, right? By all of the behavior of the people who I used to call family, right? At that moment. So, and I was dealing with this pregnancy, right? And so I remember during this whole incident, when I was talking to the JAG officer and we were, you know, moving forward with a potential trial because the only evidence at that point was the baby that I was carrying. Um, and so they were like, we feel this is pretty strong. We have strong evidence, right, that this is, this, this occurred. I had my medical, I mean, but at this time it was probably about four weeks after the incident had occurred. So there was no other physical, tangible evidence because I had thrown it away, right? Thinking that I was going to repress it and never talk about it again, right? Very unhealthy, <laughs> very unhealthy coping strategies, right? But um, And I remember one of the investigators who was female, was talking to me and asking me, well, what are you planning on doing with this baby? You know, I think she was just curious to know what I was planning on doing. And of course, at that point in my life, I was like, I 100% am going to keep it because remember how I said um, the part of my origin story that was going to come into play during this discussion was that I was a product of sexual assault. So for me, I was like, no questions asked, you know, because of course I have to give this child an opportunity. It's not this child's fault. So fast forward, because of all the hostility that I was experiencing in the unit, I had to request a leave of absence or um, a temporary, you know, leave. So they granted me a month to go home. So I came back to Fresno, California, because this is where I'm from. Went home, got to hang out with some of the, you know, some of my old friends, civilian friends, of course, right? And kind of, because a, a month is a very long time away from the military. And, you know, we have such a structured environment in the military. And especially because being medic, we were very mission-oriented, saving lives. That's what we did, right? We, we did the manpower missions, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, right? That was predominantly my whole life and my existence. So going home, it was kind of like, a, a really huge change of pace. You know, I kind of got used to being a civilian again, right? So to speak, um, being around my civilian friends um, and everybody at that time basically convinced me um, or highly encouraged me not to keep the baby. Another really big part of my storyline is that I chose not to keep the baby. And part of the reasoning behind that was because I knew going back into my unit, 
I just wanted it to be gone and over with. I didn't want to think about it. At that time, I really didn't even want to go to trial because I would have to discuss it. And clearly the way that everybody responded to me, the action spoke way louder than the words. Right. So I didn't want to have to rehash all of that stuff again. So after um, I decided not to keep the baby, I um, went back to my unit. Um, It was a month, you know, I had taken the whole month of leave. I went back to my unit and I was not knowing what to expect. You know, of course, they had to do a physical examination to make sure that, you know, everything was okay. you know, physically Um, after the situation. I think I actually at that time told them about my head injury. So I had an X-ray done of my head. I mean, clearly the way that it was handled was very probably not correct protocol um, in terms of like health and in terms of documentation and things like that. So I had a head injury. I mean, I had the x-ray, nothing came of it. But of course, at that point, I was having a lot of um, sleep problems. I was having a lot of headaches. I started having headaches and things like that. Because I, I know this now, but at the time I didn't know, but I had a mild traumatic brain injury. I'm over here suffering with this TBI, suffering with all these things. But around this whole time, I also started using maladaptive coping strategies. Right, trying to further repress my trauma and, and and basically not talk about it. And the only way for me to be able to cope with that and to cope with all the other stuff, because, you know, it's being that we were medics and that we predominantly had to see a lot of war injuries. That was another additional stress, right? So it's an additional stressor, work environment stressor that we had to cope with. And on top of that, I was dealing with all this emotional turmoil that was happening inside of me. And I didn't have anybody to talk to about it because when I came back to the unit, it was kind of like, OK, well, now it's over. Like basically the JAG officer sat me down and said, now that you don't have any physical, tangible evidence, he said, I don't want to move forward with this trial because if we do, it's just going to put you in the limelight again. And it's just going to be a he said, she said thing. And he's like, I really don't feel like this is going to you know, come to anything. So he's like, I don't want to go. I don't want to put you through that. So let's have a tangible discussion about what what you're going to do next. Right. So, um, of course, for me, I was like, no, I just want to forget about it. I just want it to be over with and done with. And I want to go back to normal. And so. Things started becoming normal, you know, um, when it came to like work environments and relationships with other people. I think people started forgetting about it or, or maybe they just thought I was lying because, of course, a lot of people in the unit did not know that I had gotten pregnant. So that wasn't, you know, that wasn't out in the open. So people just all of a sudden it was gone. He went back to work. Everybody went back to work. And so I think in most people's minds, they were probably thinking, well, she was either a liar or, you know, something else happened. So, of course, all that shame and guilt that I had experienced with the incident. Now it became this whole shame and guilt. Like people probably looked at me like I was lying. And so, of course, I had to move forward with all of these things. And mission came first, always, even after that. I still continued to do what I needed to do in order to um, it will save lives and do what we needed to do mission first. So, yeah, I was dealing with all of that internal conflict. And not once did anybody say, hey, do you think you need to speak to somebody? You know, hey, do you think that you should talk to somebody? Do you need to talk to somebody? Not once did anybody ever offer that to me. And so the story continues. And so I, I met my... Well, he's my ex-husband now, but at the time, you know, I got married while I was in the service. Uh, not too long after this incident, probably within the next, I want to say, couple months, actually, maybe like not even a year, a little bit less than a year, I met my daughter's father. And so I ended up getting pregnant um, with my daughter. She's she's 12 now, so it's, it's been a long time. Amazing child. But now imagine, you know, I'm, I'm painting this picture of the situation where I'm at. And then I get to this point where I get pregnant, you know, with, with a child voluntarily, right? You know, dealing with a pregnancy on top of that, having just had the situation that I just came out of, that was an additional stressor for me because 
and on my page a lot, I talk a lot about moral injuries. It's a discussion that's been happening a lot more uh, often. I like to say moral injury does not just affect combat soldiers. It also can uh, affect military sexual trauma survivors, domestic violence survivors. There's all different types of ways that moral injury can affect our service members. And for me, deciding not to keep the child, huge moral injury. Because one of the reasons why I decided not to keep it was because of military culture, right? And that, that pressure to feel like I needed to fit in. Um, and then not being able to speak out about the situation that had occurred and having to keep that silent because I felt like I was betraying somebody or I felt like I was not a team player. If I, if I really advocated for myself, moral injury, right? That's a really big picture, right? Of moral injury. So continuing on with, with that, after I had my daughter about a few months after, probably about eight months after I had her, I was suffering from probably depression, PTSD, all, all different types of challenges that I was experiencing. And I actually attempted suicide around that time. So I was active duty still really struggling with, um, with that. And so I, I was hospitalized and the mental health ward for like, I want to say like a month and a half or two months. And during that time, of course, I'm in the hospital where I'm working, my coworkers, they're coming up to where I'm at in the mental health ward, seeing me there, asking me questions. Why are you here? And because I, I was really good at hiding a lot of the stuff that I was, was going through internally and nobody really knew. So they're like, this is surprising. Why are you here? So shame and guilt, right? Again, shame and guilt, embarrassment, having to try to, you know, figure out how to best explain this to people because people didn't know what I was experiencing. Fast forward, uh, when I was being discharged from the mental health ward, mental health provider, male mental health provider, I was trying to explain to him why this happened, what I was feeling, what I was going through. And he said to me that no offense, but we don't, we don't need weak dogs in our army substantial statement being made, right? And even and even fast forwarding, fast forward from that, we don't want weak dogs in our army. Then he says to me, if you continue on this risky behavior or you can continue on um, self-harming behaviors, we may have to diagnose you with a personality disorder. And at that time I worked in neurology. Ironically, I was helping support um, service members who had traumatic brain injuries during that time. And I was suffering through my own traumatic brain injury and other additional situations. And and he says to me that, you know, so I know personality disorder. I know that if you get that diagnosis, it's a pre-existing condition, you'll be kicked out and you won't get benefits. So I'm like, no, I don't want that to happen to me. So I'm going to, now I'm really going to stop talking. I got to straighten up, right? And figure out my life because if I don't, I'm going to lose my career and lose potentially all the benefits that I can get coming out of the service. Yeah. All of that was very eye-opening to me. And it really really showed me my place in the military where I needed to just be mission first, not think about my own personal needs and self-advocate for myself and just, you know, repress my trauma, seriously repress it. Right. And of course that, that all spiraled out of control when I left the service, but that's, you know, that's continuing on after I left. It's horrible because not only was the rape dealt with inappropriately by like your leadership. Like once they got the name, they were like, okay, you're on your own instead of they have a SART in the mil in the air force. I don't know. I mean, they should have connected you with the right resources instead of like just pressuring you to get the name and then kind of leaving you off to your own. And then you obviously were having issues. I mean, and then to have someone in the mental health ward, not even listen to you. And that's just really kind of scary and really sad because it shows that like there's a lot of flaws in the system and how easy it is because you talked a lot about like the shame and the guilt like you felt like it was your fault because and if you said something you were like messing up the team and I think that's the military is like a family and so then when you are betrayed by someone that's part of your family it's it's really traumatic and it's really hard to 
deal with. And so, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, definitely. And, and it really, honestly, that really reinforced that whole, remember how at the beginning I didn't want to say anything and I was trying to keep it in, inside and not say anything to anybody. That whole situation and how it played out for me really reinforced that whole idea that I should never have said anything. I should have just always kept it to myself, which is definitely not healthy. And that's not something that I suggest for anybody to to do, especially, you know, giving advice to soldiers that are experiencing this currently. I mean, that's that's definitely not what you should do. Um, don't take my experience as the reason to not say anything, you know, because of course it, it did not pan out well for me when I left service, not being able to speak about it, not getting the support that I needed. So let's transition over to your transition out of the military and what happened when you left? Because, you know, like I said, after that incident that happened with my mental health, the mental health professional, that's what I relied on heavily to get through a lot of the internalized trauma that I was experiencing. So alcohol was my main thing that I used um, very often. And of course, alcohol is not your friend when you are using it to cope with, you know, mental health challenges and basically self-medicating is what I was doing. And of course, I had at that time, I had two small children. And so a situation happened. So during the time that I transitioned, transitioning out of service, you know how you have to go through those classes in order to help prepare you um, and get you ready for civilian life and civilian careers. At that time, I was married to um, a soldier. So my husband was in the army at that time. And so for me, I thought, oh, I'm a dependent, right? I'll be just fine. Me and my kids will just be dependents and we'll get healthcare and I won't ever have to worry about the, the military part of it anymore, right? For me, not doing active duty. I mean, I was considering staying in the reserves, but at that time I was inactive, you know, the inactive reserves. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to ride this out and just go to school and that will be my primary focus. So this is kind of before the, the coping strategies got really out of hand. So I, I was kind of pretty much um, in a place of, Okay, you know, so I, I'm able to transition out. I'm going to be a dependent. I'm going to go to school and everything's planned out for me. Well, during this time I transitioned out, my husband at that time, we had gotten stationed at Fort Eustis, Virginia. So we were in Virginia. He got in some serious trouble in the military and I, I don't want to put his business out there. So I'm not going to speak too much on the details of it, but he was accused of military sexual trauma. So, I mean, you can just, you can just see where I'm going with this, this whole generational curse that I felt like was hanging over my head, you know, from my origin story to what happened to me in the service to now I'm like, I'm in this situation where I'm back again at square one, shame, guilt, embarrassment, right? Because everybody found out about this situation. And of course, at that time I was a military dependent. During this time, I got deployment papers. Usually when you're in inactive reserve status, you don't get deployed. I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to get activated. So while we were going through this potential trial looming over our heads, right, I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do because I didn't pay too much attention to the transition classes on resume building and all those things because I thought I was going to be okay. I was like, oh, I'll just finish school and I had already enrolled in school. So I didn't pay attention to that stuff thinking it didn't apply, didn't apply to me. And so I kind of breezed through that without really paying attention too much. And then I found myself in a situation where I now I don't have a job, right? And my, my credentials, my EMT medic school, you get your EMT license. That expired because I didn't do my, you know, continuing educational credits. So I'm like, okay, now what am I supposed to do? So we have this trial. I get these deployment papers to activate, to go to Afghanistan, right in the middle of all this. I have my two children. I don't have a family care plan set up for my children. Then I get this phone call from my adoptive mother, the mother that I was that raised me. Her and I were not on good speaking terms. We, you know, it's a very complicated situation with us. So me and her weren't really on speaking terms at that point, but she had she had a, her aorta ruptured during this time. So they basically called me and told me that I needed to get down to California to say goodbye to her, basically. I have this trial over my head. I have this 
continuing shame and guilt because now people on the base wouldn't talk to me. Like I was basically, me and my children were basically secluded in our on-base house because of this situation that was occurring. And now my mother had this aorta rupture, so I had to get to California. So they postponed the trial. I was able to fly on Red Cross home to California. I got my deployment papers deferred because of the situation that, you know, family circumstances, basically. And I went home and she actually ended up surviving, so she didn't pass away, but it was a couple weeks of not knowing. And then I had to fly back to Virginia to deal with this the whole situation that happened. And so during this situation, for me, the impact that it had on me was that um, he, when he got arrested and he was put in the brig, I didn't have any money, right, at that time because I wasn't working. And so the Jack officer that was in charge of the case asked if I can get an apportionment so me and my children could have money to survive because none of us, we didn't work, I didn't work. The commander of the base had the opportunity to apportion the money to me and my kids and decided not to because of the egregious situation that, you know, that he had put us in, which of course, Looking back on it now, I can say to myself, none of that was my fault. None of that was my doing. But again, it's like this whole punishment situation with the military, basically criminalizing a victim. You know, this is this now this is probably the third time this has occurred to me, you know. So it really put the military and the veteran services in a really bad light for me. So, of course, it makes sense. I did not access services at the VA because I didn't feel like they were very trustworthy at that time. So I didn't I didn't access services. And so at that time, I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD or with TBI or any of the things that I was struggling through. I was never diagnosed because I wasn't going to the VA for services. I had to move off base. And at that time, because my mom's health situation, I didn't move back to California. I stayed in Virginia at that time thinking I could just figure it out as I go. Right. I'm, I'm strong. I'm resilient. I tough. I've gotten through worse. I'm like, I can do this. And so the only thing that really at that point was really holding me together was my children because I had to keep myself together, right? Because I had to care for these two young children that were in my care. And so I sold my vehicle just so I could get a place to stay. Um, The military didn't help me. The only thing that they did was basically move my furniture to another location of my choosing. They never asked me during this time, do you need support? Do you need someone to talk to? Have you accessed your veterans benefits? So at that time, I hadn't been to the VA to access my own benefits, never got support. So my story is like this huge timeline of falling in between the cracks. Every single section of my situation probably could have been prevented, probably could have um, been stopped before I, I did my whole spiral out of control situation. And it never was because it was never identified because nobody ever took the time to find out. Have you accessed your benefits? Have you, um, do you need support? Do you need someone to talk to? So I could just see how all of this was very, very preventable. But at the time in my life, I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. All I could see was surviving by any means necessary, right? That was where I was at that moment in my life. And so survival for me was reverting back to my old coping strategies that had helped me in the military, alcohol, right? And so at this point, I'm thinking to myself, the only thing that's keeping me in check is my children. So my spiral happened because my children, at that time, I was trying to find a job, trying to figure out what I was going to do to survive. And um, my mother-in-law at that time offered to take the children temporarily until I could get myself back on my feet. So it was only a temporary thing. It was only supposed to be for a few weeks or whatnot until I could find a job. I was having difficulty finding jobs because I wasn't able to access the VA benefits. I had no idea what was what was there as for, in terms of resources for me. Of course, I know now that there's so many resources the VA offers, but at that time I wasn't accessing the services, so I had no idea that they were there. So I'm trying to figure out how to get restaurant jobs and to do to just to survive. So of course, I reverted back to my old techniques of coping. And while the children weren't there, I got into like drugs and alcohol. So I was into like other substances outside of alcohol because at that time I had gotten a job in, the, in a restaurant, restaurant industries. I'm not saying that they're all like this, but oftentimes you're connected with other people who maybe 
do that kind of thing, right? And so I was exposed to this. And so now this became my new coping strategy to the point where I got myself arrested. And now I'm finding myself in a whole nother situation that I have to try to get out of. And so you can just see where the story is going. It was it was really bad. I was in a really, really bad situation. I mean, even I was even to a point where I overdosed and I had a stroke, a physical stroke, just very out of control. And um, now that I realize that there are resources available, such as Veterans Treatment Court, during that time that I was going through all of these things, I was never identified as a veteran. So I was going to the court systems. I was being channeled through civilian rehab facilities and treatment modalities. I had a very difficult time connecting because they, they didn't, it wasn't, it didn't speak to my trauma, didn't speak to the situations that I was going through. So it wasn't very helpful, right? I wasn't getting the support that I really needed from the VA or from anywhere else. But I think one of the primary reasons why I wasn't identified as a veteran was probably because I was female. Because during the time that I was going through the court systems, looking back, they had the treatment court in effect. It was available there, but it was never provided to me as a resource. Um, probably because they didn't they assume that they didn't assume that I was a veteran, right? And so I never I never got identified during that situation. So I continued to fall through these cracks, right? And these these um these, these little gaps in services, and t- to the point where I got arrested again and again three times, just out of control. So basically, that was my rock bottom. It was completely just not character of me because, I mean, before I joined the military, I was never in trouble. I was a straight A student. I was, you know, all of the, I had all of these promising things that were in line for my life, right? And my career and everything else. Um, and then I'm sitting in the situation where I'm at this rock bottom. And at that point, I had no idea how I was going to get out. When you talked about like not being identified as a veteran, I'm sure it's because you were a woman and they, people, you know, when people find out you're a veteran and you're like, yeah, I was in the military. They're like, people ask me like, well, what does your husband do? And I'm like, no, like I was in the military. And they're like, well, what does your husband do? I'm like, who cares? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think I don't understand the question of like, I'm like, no, like I understand like what a military spouse is and what a veteran is. And I, I'm both women are the highest in homelessness and they're the highest. And I think that one of the main reasons you just pinpointed it is that people don't give them the services that they need because they assume, well, they're they're a woman and then they don't realize they're a veteran. And, and like you said, all those, they weren't connecting with you because it wasn't a military resource that would have probably helped you a lot more. Exactly. Ex- exactly. Yeah, you pin- pinpoint. I mean, that, that's what I'm saying. This whole, my whole timeline of situations that I found myself in. Every single last one of them was very preventable. I mean, that that eventually we'll get into the discussion about what I do now, but that's kind of where it's like advocate advocates need to be able to identify the gaps in these services in these areas, right? Or because too often veterans, right, and female veterans, they can find themselves homeless or struggling. And if they're reverting to maladaptive coping strategies such as alcohol, for me, eventually it turned into other substances other than alcohol. But those are very common coping strategies for veterans who don't know how to speak about their trauma, who don't know how to maybe identify what's happening internally. Maybe um, the lack of education around, for me, traumatic brain injury. I had no idea what was happening to me. I question myself often, like, what is wrong with me? Often, all the time, I'm like, why can't I get my life together? Lo and behold, I had no idea that I was actually experiencing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms of a traumatic brain injury that was never treated. It was never diagnosed. It was never identified. And I think one of the primary reasons for that too was during service. They assumed because I wasn't, I had never been in a, in a combat support. I mean, a combat area where, you know, most of the time when you think of traumatic brain injuries, you think of blasts or um, war related injuries, right? And you don't think a lot about 
domestic violence or about military sexual trauma, right? Um, and about female TBI. There's very little research done on female traumatic brain injuries and the connections between that and some of the correlating symptoms that I had going forward. Because oftentimes maladaptive coping strategies such as alcohol are the go-to for people who aren't diagnosed with those conditions. Like for me, I was having a lot of cognitive processing issues. I was having a lot of memory issues. I got in trouble during work often for falling asleep on the job because of course, sitting here dealing with this traumatic brain injury, had no idea that I was experiencing this. Nobody else knew I was experiencing this. It was never identified because I wasn't a combat soldier. So it wasn't, those questions weren't asked. And ironically, remember I was telling you, I worked in a TBI clinic. Currently, they have a TBI and rehabilitative program in Launchstool, Germany. I actually helped implement that. So right before it got implemented, I was in the research and development areas. I mean, I was taking the notes with the general speaking. They were trying to get funding for this rehabilitative program. Meanwhile, I'm over here suffering myself from this TBI. And I'm and we're, we're talking about combat-related TBIs and how we can best support our combat soldiers that are coming through our clinic. And I, and I was totally dismissed, right? The opportunity to support me at that time was totally dismissed because I wasn't a combat soldier. And so that's also one of the things that we have to think about is that these don't just affect combat service members. They also affect people like military sexual trauma survivors that maybe are experiencing these things and nobody knows. And it, it makes you feel very invisible. Like for me, going through the, the motions, even through the treatment courts and stuff, I felt just so invisible. Like I wasn't, like people did, couldn't see me. Like, it's like, I'm here, I need support, but it's like nobody could see like the signs, right? Of all the things that could have could have happened, right? And, um, and all the supports that could have been given, right? That weren't given at that time. So yeah, so identifying those gaps is just, is key. It's very crucial, right? To to, to helping support um, female veterans going forward. Yeah, and so today you're helping female veterans. So what was the thing that turned your life around and changed you and you were able to find the help that you needed to get where you are today? Yeah, so uh, the last time that I found myself in jail, you know, it was I hit my I thought I hit rock bottom a few times. I wasn't sure what rock bottom looked like for me because I mean, you think having a stroke, that's rock bottom, right? No, I didn't I I kept going, right? Going to jail, that's rock bottom, right? No, I kept going, right? I kept I kept trying. Um, because I mean, for me, that was my survival techniques, right? I was reverting back to what I thought was working for me because avoidance works very well for people, right? Because you don't have to think about the trauma. You don't have to sit down and actually face it. So the last time I was in jail, I thought I hit rock bottom. I thought this is it. And for me, it was because, you know, and, and even during jail, I met some phenomenal ladies. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't think that this would be a good experience. And looking back, you know, it, for me, it was, it was a learning opportunity. And I was able to identify the gaps that happened to me. And while I was in jail, I met some really phenomenal ladies who of course, we're not veterans, you know, because I wasn't I wasn't with other veterans. I was with regular um, civilians just learning their stories and talking about talking um, about their experiences and their traumas really put a lot of things in perspective for me. Since I was little, I always kind of wanted to be in the helping field and I wanted to support other people. And that's one of the reasons why I chose to be in, why I chose medic um, as my job in the military was that I just didn't know how I wanted to help people. Right. What capacity that looked like for me. Um, and during that time, that's what that's what helping looked like for me. But what I, I, I learned when I was in these situations is that there's just so many people out there that need support and need help. And at that time, when I was thinking about my own situation, I was like, I cannot let this be the end of my story. Like, this cannot be, this cannot be what I was created for. All the experiences that I experienced, even just putting in perspective my origin story, right? When I was born, all those things. I made a really conscious decision the last time that I was arrested that that my situation was not going to end here, that I was going to change my situation around. I was going to get support and I was going to use these 
learning opportunities. I'm just learning the things that I had learned through my experiences, right? I was going to use them to better support others. And so after I was released from jail that last time, I, I didn't say this, but in between this time, I had gotten my children back um, in between the times when I was arrested. So I was homeless during a lot of this, this, these different points of incarceration for me. I was kind of homeless. And for me, homeless looked like couch surfing on people's couches. So it wasn't like we were out on the street sleeping on, on park benches. I mean, that, that did happen to me at times too. But when I had my children, I was trying by any means necessary to make sure that we were safe and that we were in a situation um, with a roof over our head. So during this time, I took my children to California and, and dropped them off with my mother. Thankfully, I had that that resource available to me. So she took my children temporarily um, and enrolled them in school while I went to you know jail for the last time that I went. And so I got out of jail. I knew my children were safe already at that time. I petitioned the judge to allow me to move to California because I wanted to get my life back together. And I felt like where I was, it was not, I wasn't going to get that, right? I needed to separate myself from the situation that I was in. I moved back to California, was reunited with my children, immediately went to the VA and I got enrolled in school. So within maybe like two months or so, I had started my bachelor's program. I'm in sociology with with a background in military. So I have my minor in military operations. So I went back to school. I started a work-study program. I actually had to pave my way. So I found out about the work-study program through the VA when I went to school using my GI Bill. There wasn't any opportunities in Fresno to do work studies for veterans. They they only had um, opportunities at maybe like the local colleges, but they were already filled. So there wasn't really opportunity there. So I'm like, I need to find a place for me to work because I probably wouldn't be able to get a traditional job because I was still on probation at that time. Right. So I'm like, I need to figure out how I'm supposed to survive. So I got a work study job. I paved my way. I had to call the EDD, the employment development department. And I knew that they had a veteran resource office there. So I'm like, I had to pitch myself. I had to say, Hey, you know, do you need a work study student? Because I'm here to help and I want to support um, veterans in any way I can. So they created a position for me there as a work study student. So I was actually the first one that was there in Fresno, in Fresno, California. And I was able to, to um, help other um, veterans find resources. So ironically, I still had an access services besides my GI Bill. So at that time, I didn't have disability. I had no idea what was going on for me. I just knew I was on this forward progression that I couldn't stop. I had to keep going. This momentum, right? As I was going to school, I was helping other veterans find resources. I was helping other veterans connect to jobs. I was doing the resumes for them. Um, I was doing workshops and resume building. Mind you, I'm over here. Nobody knows this, but I'm over here struggling, trying to figure out how I'm going to survive, just having dealt with all of these things. And one of the one of the people that I connected with at a at a stand down, you know, because I was helping. Um, of course, I was volunteering at the stand downs at that time. She was like, "Well, why don't you go get disability benefits?" I'm like, "I don't know. I don't know why I don't. Maybe I should. Maybe I need to go to the VA healthcare." So I went to the VA and I got. You know, I went and got um, my CMP evaluations. I did all the things I needed to do to get my benefits and I was able to get my benefits. Um, And that's when I was officially diagnosed with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder and some of the related symptoms that I was experiencing, like the nightmares and, you know, all of the collective experiences that you have, the flashbacks, all those things. And it really put things into perspective for me because I, like I said, I continually asked myself, what is wrong with me? You know, not necessarily what was happening to me or what developmentally was happening to me or what I was, you know, what had happened to me. Right. It was always about what is wrong with me. And so having that diagnosis and having that understanding of life isn't over, you know, you're able to to cope and figure out ways to now learn how to survive. Right. With this diagnosis. And I had to teach myself and learn all those techniques. So that was kind of like the, the, the factor that kind of helped me do a complete 180. Right. So once I got support, I got 
enrolled in school. I just continued on. I never stopped. So I, I finished my bachelor's. I enrolled in my master's program. You know, I currently have my master's in social work. Um, I went to the University of Southern California and I'm actually newly enrolled in a PhD program. So I'm getting my PhD in psychology now. But yeah, so it was it was a continuing forward motion. And I just made a conscious decision that my storyline was not going to end here. And I was going to just continue on. And I haven't stopped since. Yeah. And what's really powerful is how you you were giving out resources to veterans and you weren't using them, but yeah. you were helping veterans and you were serving them. And I think that's something that I found is like a common theme is that when you're able to give back, it can like help you either get you to the right place or get you in the right mindset or connect you with the right people. And so it's really powerful that you were able to like make that switch, get out of the situation you were in and move to California and then make all all these things happen. And it's a testament that you like didn't give up because it could have been really easy. You could have just been like, well, this is my life. And you didn't. You change you that shows what kind of person you are and the perseverance that you have. And and so let's talk a little bit about invisible combat because I don't wanna I know we're a little longer than my yeah, it's podcast long. episodes, but I wanna you talk about invisible combat so that people know what you're doing and we're recording this in march but this won't go live until the summer so i'll make sure to put updates in the show notes because i'm sure a lot will happen between now right and then. yeah because we're, we're always forward forward moving right it's always about forward progression um, but yes yeah, so invisible combat so once i graduated with my master's in social work which was actually just last august i just finished my master's not too long ago um, and I did a lot of volunteer work in the schools, working with kiddos, doing therapy with kids, with high risk children, you know, and um, and, a, and an adolescents. But my primary passion has always been the veteran population um, because, you know, just because of the experiences that I had. And I don't want those experiences to happen to others. Right. I want to be able to to help my, do my part in identifying the gaps and those and those issues. Right. So um, I started Invisible Combat as um, a healing journey for myself because I realized even in social work school, we talk a lot about self-care. We talk a lot about identifying your own trauma. Right. And, and about moving forward. So we don't allow it's called counter transference. Right. Where we we allow other people's um, stressors, other people's issues to like to reflect on ours. So I'm like, I need to do a little bit of personal healing for myself because I've never actually really sat down and healed from the stuff that I experienced. When, when I started that whole forward progression, I just kept going and never stopped. But I never really stopped to think, how did all of this affect me, right? So once I graduated, I'm like, well, now now what do I do you know, with myself? And so um, I started Invisible Combat. It's, I do basically Instagram and Facebook. I just started sharing about my experiences and putting like the story that I'm sharing with you now. Um, I just started talking about it, and but not just talking about it, but really using it as like a, almost like a case vignette, like a, theoretical, with a theoretical lens, with a military cultural lens, putting all of these experiences that I had into perspective, hopefully to make other people feel less alone or to like, you know, just to help maybe other people identify some of these gaps that I experienced so that we can collectively and collaboratively figure out how to to not have this happen to other people. And so, like I said, it became a healing journey for myself. But as I started sharing about my own experiences, people started reaching out to me um, and asking me, more questions about my experiences, you know, VA professionals, other people who mental health professionals started 
asking me, um, you know, my opinion on things and started wanting to know more about my story. And, and other individuals such as like veterans, you know, female veterans came to me and said, hey, I feel less alone because you're sharing these things. I didn't know anybody else was experiencing these things. And it's funny how we're in this, this society now where mental health is such a huge topic and everyone's talking about it, but people can still feel alone and isolated, even with all this discussion that we're having and putting that human perspective on it to remind people that, okay, we're humans before we're soldiers and we're humans after we're soldiers. And any experience that you have, any reaction that you have from trauma, that's a human reaction. And we can do, we can, we can get through this, right? We just have to progressively figure out how to keep forward moving. Um, And so Invisible Combat became that for me. And so right now, locally, we don't have a lot of supports for female veterans, specifically here in Fresno. So this is kind of a new thing that I'm starting to develop. Um, I started before all of this situation happened. I know right now we're in March, so we have a lot of things going on. Um, in the world right now in the nation. And so meetings are kind of put on hold. But before all this happened, I started, I was starting to form a committee of female veterans here locally, because I really wanted to focus on intercollaboration between the organizations here in Fresno. I want to develop mental health workshops for locally for some of the female veterans here, because we don't have a lot of that here um, locally. And so some of those, those are some of the things that I want to focus on here. So besides my blogging that I'm doing, I'm actually, my website is currently in development. I'm going to be putting a lot of research that I do, a lot of my experiences, blogging, you know, um, like I was saying, all the stuff that I share on Instagram and Facebook, I want to expand on that, you know, on uh, my website. Um, and then also do, I've been doing a little bit of empowerment events for female veterans. It's on hold right now, but I have a lot of plans for when this all, when this all blows over, hopefully, right? And I'm going to have a lot of other empowering events just to make people feel like they're less alone, less invisible, that you matter, your voice matters, your story matters, and it doesn't have to end. Even if you've been surviving by any means necessary, none of that matters. None of that defines you. You are fully capable of being resilient, you know, and I just I think that community and social networking and social connections and being able to share these stories in a safe environment are just really important to healing. Yes, that's so true. I mean, that's what the podcast is all about. So I'm so excited that we connected and I'm so excited that I got to hear your story. It's it's powerful. And I think that it's not surprising that people are connecting with you because you're making changes and you, you, they can relate to you because you went rock bottom and then you came back. And so I, I really appreciate you taking time to share your story and to share your experience. But I have one more question. So I always end the interviews with what advice would you give young ladies who are looking to join the military? So what would you say to women who are looking to join the military? So that's tough because I think a lot of people question me, like what I tell people not to join the military now that I know all of these things that happened to me or now that all the experiences that I had and I wouldn't tell them not to join. I mean, I remember how I mentioned earlier on that I had that really great experience with leadership. There are people that have really great experiences in the military. Basically, my first, my best advice would be just to know your resources, to to know yourself, to always show up authentically as yourself, to self-advocate because there are resources out there and there's a, there are people who care and there are people who will support you, even if you have to tell a few people, right? Even if you have to figure out a way to support with the right people, because not everybody is toxic. Just because you've had some bad experiences with people does not mean that um, every experience is going to be bad. You know, so those are important. And then also, too, if you ever experience trauma or anything ever happens to you, just remember that that shame, that guilt that you're experiencing, it does not belong to you. It is not yours. Do not own that release that, give it back to who it belongs to 
even with you know toxic leadership, all of those things, there are, like I said, there's people that care. Just know your resources and know, you know, know your supports and have those readily available to you in case you ever need them. Yeah, and I'll put resources in the show notes, but you should know if you are a regular listener, you can always reach out to me via email and you can connect with me on social media and I can help you. If I can't help you, I can find someone who will. So know that you are not alone and you have support. And so, yeah, I think the military has a lot of great things, but it is really easy to get isolated Mm -hmm. and to feel like you're alone. And so if you feel that way, know that you're not alone and that you have people to reach out to. Absolutely, yes. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that you took your time out of your day to do this interview. And I think it's really going to help people just to hear your story and to know your experience. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. And I'm so glad we connected, you know, fellow Fresnan, right? (laughs) I'm really glad. Yes, (laughs) it is. Thank you. Thank you very much. listening to this week's episode of women of the military podcast do you love all things women of the military podcast become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review it really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow are you still listening you could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book women of the military on amazon every dollar helps helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.